and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. So yeah, as you can tell from the title of the episode, this is not going to be uh, a typical uh, podcast episode, but uh, I've been meaning to upload a dissertation chapter or two to the podcast feed, and there's one that really makes a lot of sense to upload to the feed uh, because uh, my dissertation is about the kind of history of gender and sexuality for indigenous people, or like Ojibwe people specifically, in the late 18th and early 19th century in the kind of Red River of the North here, North Dakota, Minnesota, Manitoba. And uh, I wrote a final chapter that was sort of comparing the experience of a an Orcadian laborer who I kind of think was a trans man, and what their experience was like working for the Hudson's Bay Company and kind of being raised in Orkney and then living in Canada for a while, like how that compares to what the indigenous experience was for, for two-spirit people or trans people. Uh, my dissertation is mostly about a two-spirit person um, named Ozawindib, who would have known, kind of thought of themselves as a woman or as a Nagolkwe, uh, was the Ojibwe term at the time for kind of trans women. You know, gender and sex, uh, arguably, well, gender especially is like a construct, right? Like every culture has a, a kind of different take on it, uh, a different, no, a slightly different um, perception of it. And, uh, one thing I can, I have been able to figure out from, you know, writing a dissertation and teaching gender and sexuality for a while is no one is really more obsessed with gender and sex than Europeans and kind of conservative Christian backed, uh, background, uh, European influenced folks. Um, and that seems to be the case for uh, Ojibwe people where like, yeah, if a man was born, if a person was born, like, and it looks like they've got a penis, but it turns out that they identify with all the women things and do women things, well, they're just a woman, and that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to call them. Um, and so John Tanner, like, the most indigenous source that we have about uh, Ozawendib said, oh, yeah, this is one of those men that, you know, thinks of themselves as a woman, lives as a woman, all the Indians call them women, uh, or, you know, an Agokwa, an Agokwa, that's sort of defining of their condition. Um, and then like in John Tanner's narrative, then he uses female pronouns. But I think this also demonstrates kind of, um, how this matters for Ojibwe people. Pronouns aren't gendered. So there isn't like a he or she gender. Like the, the third person pronoun in Ojibwe is, is neutral. It's ween means he or him or her or them. Uh, it doesn't like them singular. It doesn't have a, a gendered component to it. So anyway, this chapter, uh, is the last chapter of the dissertation. So there might be some references to Ozawendib and kind of Ojibwe cultural practices in contrast, especially towards the end of the chapter. I think there is some discussions of what Ozawendib's experience would have been in contrast to what uh, Gunn or Fubister experienced. But overall, I think it's a uh, interesting take, uh, or it was a lot of fun anyway for me doing kind of the research to understand uh, Scottish and Orcadian gender and sexuality and how that played out in the kind of labor system of the Hudson's Bay Company in the early 1800s. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, yeah, in the United States and in Scotland, there have been some kind of horrible legal attacks on the trans people's right to exist. And um, I think 
it's important that we all realize that trans people have always existed and will always exist. And I think a, a big part of the, the reason that we have so many laws being passed and that um, like the the right in the United States has decided to attack trans people and, and, and clearly they are working their way uh, back to, to queer people in general, but like they're attacking trans people as a way to like get their base riled up and have some new person that they're allowed to kind of be angry at and that, that's a good way to mobilize folks um it's an effective way to mobilize folks i shouldn't say it's good it, it it works um and i think you know the reality like i said trans people always existed and this history has explicitly not been taught or has been kind of erased or uh not even speculated on so so it feels like the least i can do uh is you know to you know a little bit late for trans day of visibility offer up a visible history of transness in 18th and early 19th century Scotland and North America. So hope you enjoy. This is chapter five of my dissertation, Oza Windham's World. Chapter five. John Fobister, Ozewindib, The Red River, and the Queer Atlantic World. Isabel Gunn lived most of their life, circa 1781-1861, as a woman of that name, but for at least two years they dressed, worked, and lived as a man named John Fobister. Their story presents challenges for interpretation, but there is evidence to support an argument that Fobister was a trans man, and not a cis woman cross-dressing from 1806 to 1809. When Fobister was discovered as a woman, their explanations were keeping with tropes of the time of women cross-dressing to follow lovers, but Fobister's story changed with subsequent explanations, which introduces doubt into that narrative. The challenge with knowing how to interpret Gunn is that laboring-class women in Scotland and much of the Atlantic world had such poor rights and access to opportunities that it is hard to know if Gunn was a trans man who chose John Fubister as his new name and set out to live his life as a typical Arcadian man, or if they were, as most have supposed, a cis woman who was merely cross-dressing as a man to gain advantages and opportunities denied her sex. They are similar to Windib in that very little information has survived in the historical record coming from Gunn or Fubister themselves, but the details that have survived allow for a compelling argument that Fubster was what we would today call a trans man. Their example is useful in exploring complexities of gender in the Atlantic world and demonstrates the stark contrast between Ojibwe and colonial societies in their treatment of individuality and gender nonconformity. Fubster and Ozawinda had few things in common, but they both lived at or near a trading post at Pemina and were regarded by the fur traders as oddities worthy of comment. In late December of 1806, Alexander Henry, the same clerk of the Northwest Company's fur post at Pemina, who recounted Ozawindib's feats of speed and dexterity, commented on the presence of another person whose gender presentation surprised him. Henry found one of the Orcadians, who had worked for the neighboring Hudson's Bay Company post, loitering around on the Northwest Company's side of the river in clear discomfort. Henry allowed the sick laborer to rest in the warmth of the post's hearth, and soon discovered that the lad was, quote, was not of the sex I had supposed, but an unfortunate Orkney girl, Orkney girl present and actually in childbirth, unquote. Nearly two years prior, Fubister had signed a three-year contract with the HBC at Stromness in the Orkney Islands. In 1806, as part of their assignments, they had been sent to the winter at the Pemina Post under the HBC clerk Henley. 
Scholars often take Isabel Gunn or John Fubister at face value as a cross-dressing cis woman who signed up with the HPC to follow a lover from Orkney. And more nuanced approaches acknowledge the financial benefits Gunn enjoyed living as a man, but consider it as only a means to adventure and financial reward rather than a gender-affirming identity. While those are possible scenarios, uh, this chapter will demonstrate that there are many reasons to consider Fubister not only as a woman who cross-dressed, but as a trans man. Isabel Gunn, or John Fubister, tragically eliminates the contrast between Ojibwe and Scottish societies and their treatment of both LGBT individuals and also women in general. As with those of Wendib, Fubister is best understood in the economic, political, and religious context of their worlds. This chapter looks at the economic options laboring men and women had on the Orkney Islands, the effects the HVC had on the islands and the gender systems in place, which governed men's and women's actions, cis women on Orkney Islands, and other options. Cis women on the Orkney Islands had other options to gain economic status than to live as men and work for the HPC. This chapter also compares Fubister with other people in the Atlantic world, apart from Ozawindib, who challenged gender expectations. Other scholars and journalists have discussed Fubister as a woman seeking love, adventure, and opportunity. They may be correct. However, Fubister's age and use of popular tropes from British literary custom to explain themselves when discovered to not be a cis man convinced me that it is worth considering Gunn as Fubister, a trans man. Alexander Henry was confused and surprised by Fubister. He tried to make sense of the presence of an Orcadian woman giving birth in trousers, much as he had tried to make sense of Ozoendib. Henry wrote, she further informed me of the circumstances which had brought her into this state. The man who had debauched her in the Orkneys two years ago was wintering at Grand Forks. Despite Henry's one-sentence explanation, this chapter contemplates in detail what circumstances brought Fubister to the Red River to give birth in a pair of trousers. First, we must address why so many Arcadian men cross the Atlantic to work across North America. As with the pillagers moved to the prairies, economics, politics, and warfare played roles in Orcadians leaving their island home to work for the HVC. The Orkney Islands are an archipelago located about 10 miles from the northeast coast of Scotland. This distance from Scotland and positioning in the sea long made the Orkneys and the Shetland Islands even further north important places for Atlantic travelers. Viking raiders and eventual Norse raiders and earls made the Orkney Islands their home. While it is easy to portray much of the 18th century Scotland, particularly the Highlands, where many of the Northwest Company fur traders were born, as isolated, the Orkney, Highlands, the Orkney Islands were deeply connected with other parts of the Atlantic world. Ships that crossed the North Atlantic often filled their water holds at Stromness, the only port town on the Orkney mainland, mainland being the name for the largest island of the Orkneys. Within the decades of the HBC's founding, Orcadians became its favorite labor source. Orcadians today proudly claim that the York boats that eventually came ubiquitous in the Canadian fur trade out of Hudson's Bay were Canadian versions of the Orkney Yole. By the time Isabel Gunn was born at Tankerness in St. Andrew's Parish on Orkney mainland, the HBC was a major source of economic support for working class or poor Arcadians. When the Earls ruled Orkney, as elsewhere in Scotland, land was divided up based on the ruler's favor. When Scotland took over control of the Orkney Islands in the 15th century, land was distributed the same way, but as the 18th century progressed, more and more lands were in fewer and fewer hands, and those hands generally attached to absentee landlords. Small-scale landowners, property holdings, were constantly reduced from generation to generation. Land inheritance was split between sons rather than just left to the oldest, meaning modest but workable land holdings in the 15th century had turned into tiny lots that could not sustain a family. This pushed more Circadians into renting from the absentee landlords with their exorbitant rents in addition to the few duties, relics of the feudal system of delivering a large amount of any wealth generating materials from the land to the landowner. Short of coin, many tenants paid their food duties in peats cut and dried in the lands or processed kelp or other meager 
bigger agricultural products they could manage on the treeless island. This in turn drove many men to seek employment with the HBC away from the Orkney Islands to earn enough money to perhaps buy larger tracts of land. There were a few other sources of income on the islands. One exception, the kelp industry was purely seasonal, as well as detrimental uh, to other parts of the economy. Unskilled servants across the island would disappear seasonally for one or two months a year to process the kelp that would wash up on shore. The statistical account of Firth, where John Scarth, the father of Fubister's child, uh, Parrish, recorded that, quote, many of the young people of each sex with cottages, tailors, and shoemakers who are unemployed in the summer in the handicrafts are all employed in kelp making. It is scarcely possible for a farmer to keep a manservant or even boy without allowing him a month or two of the summer to go to the kelp, at which work in a dry season they make far better wages than the farmers can afford, end quote. The burned and processed kelp would be turned into potash and sold for as much as 10 pounds per ton. The account from Fubister's home parish of St. Andrews mentioned that it was difficult to keep servants in employ, even women being able to earn eight shillings a month, as well as three stones of meal from kelp. Whereas servant wages from men could be two to four pounds a year, a woman servant earned a little over half a pound to a pound. One traveler did not see kelp as a long-lasting improvement to Orkney's poverty, but instead saw it as an overall detriment. Quote, Throughout Orkney, the state of agriculture is indeed very low. The fact is that in Orkney, at this day, the landholders pay attention to nothing but the manufacture of kelp. Agriculture is quite a secondary consideration. The fisheries, too, are utterly neglected. Such being the case, the reader will not, we believe, conclude that we are prophesizing if we say that kelp will be the ruin of Orkney. A failure in demand for kelp would make Orkney poor indeed, end quote. The emphasis on the kelp came at the cost of other industries. The same traveler as above remarked that people were too concerned with working kelp to take advantage of August fisheries, and the one boat that went out was ill-equipped for the task, having no working nets in their possession. The poor of some parishes were near starving, all while fish filled scapa flow, the Orkney Mediterranean. For servants who did not want to be tied, to working the kelp for the poor wages with few prospects, emigration was a real option for both men and women. Quote, Many young women very often removed to Leith, Newcastle, Edinburgh, or London when they get into good service or are married and never more return to reside in their own country. We cannot calculate these different descriptions of people who annually emigrate and are either partially or totally lost to this place, below 400. The whole of these, as it may well be supposed, are our most vigorous, spirited, and industrious young people of both sexes, and this consideration alone is sufficient to show what an incalculable loss such a yearly emigration must be to a remote province, but thinly inhabited. End quote. While the young people, men and women, may have often left for the cities to the south never to return. The men, and Jonathan Fubister, who worked for the HBC, often returned and invested in their community. Generally, a poorer class than the landholders uh, that were able to move to comfortable Kirkwall for the winter, the workers from the HBC returned to their meager cottages and small holdings and oftentimes tried to improve them. The generosity of HBC laborers put the parish ministers and leaders in a conflicted state when writing the statistical accounts. Nearly every report of Orkney of the Orkney's comments on the lack of men, owing to so many people signing to work for the HBC. Few are as angrier in their expression of the parish than <clears throat> few are as angry in their expression as the parish Firth account, which was the home parish of John Scarth, the man who impregnated Fubister. Reverend John Malcolm wrote, 
Nothing, however, contributes much to the hurt of this place as the resort of the Hudson's Bay Company ships to Stromness and their engaging lads from this country. A few lads returning with some money make excellent recruits for the company's service, and the report of war makes great numbers solicit to go out to their settlements. The farmer's servants and sons leave them to spend the prime of life in cold and drudgery in the northwest, from whence such of them as are not incapacitated by diseases contracted there return to the farmers, their skill in that line not improved by their absence, and their habits frequently not calculated to make them successful. End quote. While many contributors to the statistical accounts echo Malcolm, they also often comment on the benefits of the HBC and their communities. Even Malcolm's comments describe a good side to service to the HBC, particularly that married couples who could not get along solved their differences, not with divorce, but by the husband continually returning to the service of the HBC for three to seven years per contract. The HBC was a potential place for men to get better compensation for their labor. This was not an option for women, so the argument that Fubister cross-dressed only as a way to secure employment with the HBC is possible, though it seems extreme. Fubister could have remained living as a woman and moved to mainland Scotland or England for better wages and romantic prospects as many women had done before. The biggest contribution laboring men were able to make to the Orkney Islands, however, was to leave to work for the Hudson's Bay Company and come back with experience and wealth. If Fubister found their identity most affirmed and aligned with laboring the laboring men of the Orkneys, the HPC would be the most obvious way to form a male identity. John Fubister's contract was typical of Arcadian men who first signed at the HBC in that it paid better and had more room for advancement than most economic options on the islands. Fubister's pay was to be £8 per year for a three-year contract. Often laborers in the HBC would sign on again at the end of the first contract period. If a laborer had learned more skills or gained specific experience, they might now be engaged as a specific tradesman like boat builders, carpenters, or tailors in the company service with an increase in wages. When John Scarth traveled to Hudson's Bay in 1806, he was returning to the service at significantly higher wages, £32 a year, compared, compared to wages much closer to Fubister's when he began. Apart from inspiring young men to leave the islands in search of wealth in the Canadian fur trade, returning HBC employees were able to improve their communities and families' lives and gain social status from these actions. HBC worker William Thomason began his career like Fubister, but progressed quickly in the company to become a factor, a trader who established and operated several trading posts over a long tenure. Rather than simply buying up land and demanding food duties and extravagant rents, Thomason set up a school um, for children in his home island of South Ronaldsea. Thomason went so far as to build the school and supply £20 a year to secure a, to secure a school teacher. Thomason's school stands in stark contrast to regular reports of parishioners who petitioned and bagged Lord Dundas, the largest landowner of the Orkneys, who demanded such high food duties to repair their churches or to build schools, roads, and bridges. Men like Thomason became known as Peary Lairds for their money uh, they were able to spend on both themselves and their community. Clearly, HPC work could be a path not just to wealth, but to social status. While men like Scarth or Thomason could quickly earn a large amount of money and bring it back to Orkney, that was not an option for working-class women in the Orkney Islands. Women's wages were much lower than men's were at the same time. This may well have been because there were more women than men present on the islands, a scarcity of male laborers may well have driven up men's wages. The Ophir Parish of Orkney had a hundred more women than men. Uh, certainly, this wage disparity did not reflect a difference in the difficulty of men's or women's work. Gunn, as a working-class Arcadian girl, uh, could have had, would have had to do 
much physically demanding and seasonal labor, whether it was working kelp, chasing after sheep or cattle on common grazing land, or working as a maidservant in a landlord's house. The amount and type of labor that women had to do in the Orkneys and Scotland was sometimes gendered, but often with few men around, women wound up tending to tasks that might have been considered more suited for men elsewhere in Great Britain. These practices, along with Arcadian men's and women's unequal employment opportunities or economic opportunities, have led writers to portray Fubuster's motivation as purely economic. However, a deeper look at Scottish women's roles reveals economic and social advantages and opportunities as well as parallels to the way outsiders described Ojibwe women. While Scottish fur traders often remarked on the menial and drudgery of uh, labor of Ojibwe women, English visitors to Scotland made similar observations. Accounts of Scottish women's drudgery and servitude in Thomas Pennant's account of Scotland are very reminiscent of Scottish accounts of Ojibwe women. 1769, Pennant wrote of Scottish women, quote, The tender sex are the only beasts of burden, end quote. Scottish fur trader Peter Grant used identical language in saying Ojibwe women on the Red River did, quote, All the drudgery and the most laborious part of the work. Those women, for all their work and devotion, are regarded by the men as little better than slaves to their will or mere beasts of burden. Just as Peter Grant was lacking some nuance in understanding Ojibwe gender roles, relations, outside observers missed the mark of Scottish women as well. Particularly misleading are the accounts from the coastal villages of Scotland with no docks where women carried men to the fishing boats. Men might be out on the boat for much of the day, so it was important that they arrive in the boat which I closed to avoid hypothermia that would accompany being drenched in the North Sea. One entry from a fishing community from the 1794 statistical account from Rathven read, quote, the fisherwives lead a most laborious life. They assist in dragging the boats down the beach and in launching them. They sometimes, in frosty weather and at unseasonable hours, carry their husbands on board and ashore again to keep them dry. They receive the fish from the boats, carry them fresh or after salting to their customers and to market at the distance, sometimes of many miles through bad roads and in a stormy season." End quote. This description, like fur traders' accounts of Ojibwe women, emphasized drudgery, but like Ojibwe women, fisherwives asserted their authority over the products of their labor, the haul of the fish they processed and turned into kippers or smoked fish for markets. Scottish novelist Sir Walter Scott went so far as to write that the women in coastal villages were part of a gynocracy, or a female-led government system. Two women in Scott's 1816 novel, The Antiquary, talk about the status of inland women versus the women on the coast who tended to the fishing. Scott's inland woman is shocked by the custom of kilting the petticoat, or to carry fish and husband ashore. She says, Poor the drudges ye are, and that's the gate fisherwife's life, poor slaving bodies. The fisherwife insists she is head of the household, saying in response, Slaves! Go, alas! Give the head of the house the slaves! Little ye ken about it, lass! Show me a word my Saunders dare speak, or turn out the house without it be just to take his meat and his drink and his diversion, like any other wains. He has mere sense than to call anything about the big in the scene. Fray the roof free down to a cracket trencher on the bink. Show me in o your bets of farmer bodies that wad let their wife drive the stock to the market and call in the debts. Nah, nah. If Scott's interpretation is to be believed, then this role is very similar to the status of Ojibwe women enjoyed in their own homes. They owned the home and nearly everything in it, and were able to evict husbands and divorce if they chose. Ojibwe women also often dealt with much of the commercial enterprises of the family, just as the Fisher wife here. Scott added a note to his text asserting that this was far more than just a flight of his fantasy. Scott wrote, In the fishing villages on the 1st of the 4th and Tay, as well as elsewhere in Scotland, the government is a gynocracy. 
as described in the text. In the course of the late war, and during alarm of invasion, a fleet of transports entered the Firth of Forth under the convoy of some ships of war, which would reply to no signals. A general alarm was excited, in consequence of which all the fishers who were enrolled as sea fencibles got on board the gunboats, which they were to man as occasion should require, and sailed to oppose the supposed enemy. The foreigners proved to be Russians, with whom we were then at peace. The country gentlemen, the county gentlemen of Midlothian, pleased with the zeal displayed by the sea fencibles at a critical moment, passed a vote for representing or presenting the community fishers community fishers with a silver punch bowl to be used on occasion of festivity. But the fisherwomen, on hearing what was intended, put in their claim to have separate share in the intended honorary reward. The men, they said, were their husbands. It was they who would have been sufferers if their husbands had been killed, and it was by their permission and injunctions that they embarked on board the gunboats for the public service. They therefore claimed to share the reward in some manner which should distinguish the female patriotism which they had shown on the occasion. The gentlemen of the country county willingly admitted the claim, and without diminishing the value of their compliment to the men, they made the females, females a present of a valuable brooch to fasten the plot of the queen of the fisherwomen for the time. Scott's account is reminiscent of some Ojibwe women's military contributions. If they were not active combatants themselves, Ojibwe women made their moccasins, which were required to successfully go off to war and would permit or stop war parties or individual warriors. Nanoqua stopped her son John Tanner from going off to war when she thought him too young by taking his gun from his as, as well as his moccasins. Scott's anecdote certainly shows that some Scottish women, particularly women in fishing villages, had considerable status and authority over their community and selves. Although... There are no similar explicit declarations of women's power recorded about the Orkneys. Uh, accounts of the drudgery likely overlook similar nuances. While fishing was not as common as it perhaps should have been in the Orkneys, carrying people to shore was normal. Kirkwall was the biggest town on mainland Orkney, but it did not have a dock during Fubister's lifetime. And one visitor remarked in 1806, quote, Passengers from the adjacent islands must either leap into the sea or be carried ashore on men's shoulders. It is to be hoped that a great deficiency, so great a deficiency will not be long overlooked. In this case, men were the ones caring rather than women. What does Scott's assertion of gynocracy in parts of Scotland mean for Fubister Gun? Well, they had options. Scottish women could carry men on their backs and still have complete control over their households. Even in this pattern did not hold true in the Orkneys, Orcadian men and women emigrated regularly to Scottish or English cities. George Barry wrote about our most vigorous, spirited, and industrious young people leaving Orkney the year before Fubister signed on with the HBC. Quote, Many young women very often are moved to Leith, Newcastle, Edinburgh, or London, where they soon get into the service and are married, never more to return and reside in their country. End quote. Fubister certainly matches a description of vigorous, spirited, and industrious, and could have taken advantage of separate opportunities while continuing to live as a woman. Instead, Fubister chose a path that both required and facilitated living as a man. Fubister signed up with the HBC at a time when they would not wind up on a ship full of people from their home community. Uh, they might have signed up to work for the HBC as a way to avoid people who might recognize them at all. Men from Fubister's home at St. Andrew's Parish did go into the service of the HBC, but the statistical account for Tankerness in this parish uh, stands out by mentioning several other professions the men went into, such as the Iceland fishery and the Navy. Fubster may have been a trans man rather than a cis woman cross-dressing in order to get a chance to make more money. They could have left the Orkneys as a woman, like so many women had done for years, and find better prospects. Choosing the name John Fubster and signing up to work at the HPC can be seen as an act of a trans man.
Fabister's actions were not unique. For many Europeans, the Atlantic world opened up options to reinvent themselves or become paragons of their ideology or religion. This was the case for LGBTQ Europeans who chose to leave their homes and Africans who did so against their will as well. People wishing to change or affirm their genders and lifestyles would generally leave home to do it. Despite the sometimes weak enforcement, sodomy and buggery laws in European states could carry death sentences, making public displays of cross-dressing or same-sex relationships a life-threatening risk. However, the Atlantic world offered women dressing as men, regardless of their sexual orientation, some of the same options and rights as men. There is an entire genre of folk songs and stories about the slightly too pretty cabin boys who was discovered by shipmates. As through the Bay of Biscay their gallant ship did plow, one night amongst the sailors there was a pretty row. They bundled from their hammocks, it did their rest destroy, and they swore about the groaning of the handsome cabin boy. Oh doctor, oh doctor, the cabin boy did cry. The sailors swore by all was good the cabin boy would die. The doctor run with all his might, and smiling at the fun, for to think a sailor lad should have a daughter or a son. It would be foolish to take such stories and songs as literally true accounts. Many may have been songs representing sailors' hopes or discovering uh, discovering that their floating environment was not void of uh, accessible female sexual partners. However, there are several accounts of women traveling or working aboard ships while passing as men. Since many laws against sexual and gender nonconformity were focused on men, women who lived as men and had same-sex relationships could fall through the cracks. Because of their lack of legal rights in patriarchal European societies, women passing as men could radically improve their status, which was one of many motivations. Rudolf Amdecker and Lotzi van der Poel examined the legal records of the Netherlands and discovered a large number of women who had been discovered passing for men in the early modern period. They argued that, quote, such women should not be characterized should not be categorized as incidental human curiosities, but that their cross-dressing was a part of a deeply rooted tradition. If the, in the early modern era, passing oneself off as a man was a real and viable option for women who had fallen into bad times and were struggling to overcome their difficult circumstances. The pressures which led to the decision of cross-dressing could be both material, such as poverty, or emotional, such as patriotic fervor or love for another woman, or a combination of these." End quote. One of the many revelations that Decker and Van Poel uncover is that many of the women who were cross-dressing in Amsterdam were from somewhere else. It was perfectly acceptable for women to cross-dress while traveling for ease and safety, and women who wanted to live permanently as men would have found it far easier to do so in a new environment. The treatment of these women varied when discovered, but in general, they benefited from the cultural understanding and undervaluing of women. Decker and Van de Poel wrote, quote, It was judged that a woman who became a man strove to become something better, higher than she had been, and that was considered an understandable and commendable effort in itself, end quote. The positive response was dependent on what the woman had done while passing for a man. Successful military service was commended and often used for propaganda purposes, but it but if the cross-dressing facilitated criminal activity, the reaction was very negative. Decker and Van de Poel write, quote, "...considered the worst of these practices was the perversion of a relationship or even marriage with another woman, not only the natural order of things, but also religious consternation, consecration of the divine order was mocked." End quote. 
Courts were angered by same-sex relationships of women and even occasionally accused women of sodomy after they had confessed to seducing and debauching women they had married. While one judge recommended the death penalty, ultimately it was reduced to whippings and banishment, as in all of the similar cases. Lesbian relationships in the most extreme cases could lead to beatings, imprisonment, and banishment, uh, but in the Netherlands, women were not executed by the courts. Some banished women might have entered the transatlantic world as a result. Sodomy or buggery laws were present in all of the transatlantic empires. These laws had a complicated historical and religious context. Sodomy is a reference to the biblical story of Sodom, a city on the, that the Christian God punishes for its lack of righteous inhabitants by turning it into fire and brimstone. Among the unrighteous deeds of Sodom is homosexual sex. By the time transatlantic empires of Spain, the Netherlands, and France were in the Americas, the penalty for sodomy was to be executed and then burned or burned at the stake, which was intentionally referential to God's punishment of Sodom. There was a real fear amongst the Dutch officials of New Netherlands that sodomy would invite extreme punishment from God. To prevent their colonies from being turned to brimstone and fire, they believed they needed to exact terrible punishment for anyone associated with sodomy themselves. One slave who was found guilty of raping a 10-year-old boy was strangled to death and burned, all while his victim watched and was whipped for being associated with sodomy. Of the rapist, they wrote, quote, Such a man is not worthy to associate with mankind, and the crime on account of its heinousness may not be tolerated or suffered in order that the wrath of God may not descend upon us as it did Sodom, end quote. Regardless of the number of cases, the European transatlantic used, European transatlantic used queerness and accusations of sodomy as the other, end quote. Uh, from the time of Columbus's second voyage, Euro Europeans were accusing indigenous Caribbeans of sodomy and cannibalism to justify colonization. The roots of accusations or other, of the other as homosexual can be seen in the use of the term birdash uh, to describe two-spirit people in general, which had its roots in Catholic Spain, othering the Moors who had controlled parts of the Iberian Peninsula until 1491. While transatlantic empires and religious institutions were punishing and killing two-spirit people alongside LGBTQ colonizers and immigrants, some Europeans may have chosen emigration to get more distance from the authorities governing their sexuality. While the Spanish and Dutch colonial authorities were merciless in some of the punishments for homosexual men, the English and French seemed less likely to inflict the severest punishments. The details of the first legal sodomy case in New France suggest that an indigenous man was involved. In 1648, a drummer boy in Ville-Marie, future Montreal, was found guilty of sodomy and sentenced to be hanged. But Jesuits in Quebec intervened on his behalf. In lieu of the gallows, the drummer was accepted the position of executioner of justice. Some historians have suggested that since there is no record of the drummer boy's sexual partner, he was likely native. New France, like many Atlantic powers, punished sodomy with a possible death sentence, but at least in the first cases in New France, death did not occur. The next case of someone tried for sodomy in New France was in 1691. This case did not involve indigenous people, but did occur at Michelin-Mackinac, where Ozawindeb a century later would witness the murder of Nace Coupe. In the 1691 case, a lieutenant and two of his soldiers were found guilty of sodomy. Eight eyewitnesses, eight witnesses observed the threesome. If the people of New France had a tradition of acceptance of queer relationships, it is possible that the Streestrom was just too public to be ignored. None of the three men were executed. Instead, the officer, Nicolas Dauci Signor uh, de Saint Michael, was banished from the colony, and the two soldiers were reprimanded. 
For the English, prosecution of sodomy in the 18th century was rare, and convictions were even rarer. In England, the law was interpreted in such a way that there needed to be a witness of penetration and ejaculation for there to be a conviction, meaning consensual sex between two men was unlikely to be punished with death for lack of witnesses. Men who were spotted might be charged and punished for lesser offenses, such as assault with sodomitical intent, uh, but that did not carry the death penalty. Still, LGBT Englishmen might enjoy the liberties and opportunities of the sea. Going even further afield, David Chang writes about the relationship between British ship captain John Mears and Hawaiian Ali'i, or chief Ka'iana in the 1780s. While British sources only suggested a possible romantic relationship between the two men, the Hawaiian sources are less ambiguous, using phrases like Aikani and friend. Chang writes, quote, An Aikani is a romantic same-sex friend, generally and unproblematically assumed to be a sexual partner. Hawaiians had no notion that they were gay or homosexual in the sense that those words are commonly used today. They were not members of a distinct minority population set apart by an endearing, enduring same-sex relation, orientation. Rather, they were engaging in one kind of sexual relationship. In, the life, in their lifetimes, they would probably take part in relations with both men and women. What seems a problematic conjecture of illusion in Mir's writing, were they lovers? In Hawaiian, is a simple fact. Mir's, of course, did not have the cultural background to feel comfortable writing about Ka'ana as his Aikani. Instead, he wrote of his friend. With what Chang describes as, quote, with rapturous admiration for his features, height, strength, and musculature, but also with a striking affection and tenderness. For people like John Mears, the different gender systems of indigenous people and native Hawaiians showed an alternative to a life of fear and risk of discovery and execution. Indigenous sexuality and gender expressions may have showed alternatives to the cis-heteropatriarchies colonizers came from, and the distance from home authorities may have also been liberating. The Pacific Ocean is far removed from the metropole, so too is Michelmackinac. Perhaps Nicholas Dowsey thought in 1601 that Lake Michigan was far enough removed from the colonial centers of power that he could engage in same-sex partnerships more openly. For John Fubister, the HPC and the Atlantic world may have represented a chance to fully affirm their gender as a man doing the work that many young men did on their home island, but amongst men who would not recognize them as Isabel Gunn. Where instead, Fubister could join the other men, as one reverend put it, spending, quote, the prime of life in cold and treachery in the Northwest, end quote. Laborers, like the fur trade officials who wrote about Ozoendib, were likely aware of two-spirit people, and considered them a curiosity worthy of discussion. Occasionally, men returned from Canada with indigenous wives and children as well. It is plausible that Fabister heard stories of two-spirit people like Ozoendib and saw working for the HPC as a way to get closer to these communities who did not punish people whose gender identity clashed with their gender assigned at birth. Fabister's journey to North America began in Stromness. On the 26th of June, 1806, Jonathan Fabister signed a three-year contract with David Geddes, the HPC's agent operating in Stromness. Fubister sailed to Hudson's Bay aboard the Prince of Wales, captained by Henry Hanwell Sr. on the 27th of August. The ship arrived in Albany Factory, also called Fort Albany, Albany House, or just Albany, where the men were met by a shallop which ferried goods and passengers between the schooner and fort. Twenty-three men came to shore, most of whom, like John Scarth, were from Firth Parish. 
John Fubister was the only one from Tankerness. Albany Factory was an important hub for the Albany River District, which stretched from James Bay all the way to the Red River, well over a thousand miles away by river and lake. Fubister's daily task as a laborer for the HPC would vary from season to season. Factors in charge of HPC posts would assign people like Fubister work or expect more experienced laborers like John Scarth to lead work crews. Every post had to constantly gather firewood, do maintenance on existing structures, or construct new buildings and palisades, gather construction materials including timber, clay, grass, set and maintain fishing nets and snare lines, and possibly hunt to offset the European provisions brought in on the boats and cook food for everyone at the post. Every laborer was primarily there to haul equipment of food and trade goods and store it in warehouses using boats, sleds, tump lines, and travel to and from indigenous hunting camps to collect food and furs owed to the HBC. At Albany Factory, the weather was hospitable enough for Fubister to be tasked with making new gardens or tending to existing ones, as well as looking after cattle, which were relatively easy to have at Albany Factory owing to its proximity to the sea. When Fubister arrived at Albany Factory in 1806, the large construction project was replacing an existing structure, the East Flanking Building. To do this, the post-laborers were burning for lime as well as laying bricks, and the fort had two pit saws which were in steady operation. The one task there is a record of Fubister not doing is helping the blacksmiths make nails. When Fubister was sent inland to the Red River in 1806, they might have been detained to winter at Martin's Falls instead. The factor at Albany, John Hodgson, wrote to Joe Jacob Corrigal, the factor at Martin's Falls, that, quote, David Michael, John Fubister, and William Sinclair may be detained at the fall for the winter if you need them. The former will act as a smith in making nails and other work in that line, he being competent enough for it. If Fubister was quote, competent enough for it, Hodgson likely would have mentioned it. Apart from the building at Albany Factory, there was always work to be done in the shipyards. Almost, mostly specialists and tradesmen made the boats, but they would still rely on help from laborers like Fubister to collect rocks for ballast and to go looking uh, for and bring back crooked wood, essential in building boats. Albany, as a hub, was constantly concerned with repairing and replacing a flotilla of different types of boats. Large shallops were used to either unload schooners, which should not make it to shore, or for going all the way to Moose Factory. Rafts were built for local use and to float firewood from one side of the river to the other, often the raft becoming the firewood, and for going inland to supply the trading posts outfitted through the Albany River. Martins Falls and Osnaburg House were trading posts many days travel upriver, and it's not clear if the boats were merely meant to replace the boats used to come and go from Martins Falls or Osnaburg House, or if they were of a largest size possible for reaching the posts. Specifically, Osnaburg was over 100 miles of rowing and portaging further inland, and it is likely a smaller boat would be much easier to reach. The HBC enjoyed a relative monopoly in the fur trade in the Albany River District for decades, but by the 1780s, new traders were expanding throughout many of the waterways that drained into Hudson's Bay. In the 1790s, the HBC found many of their posts challenged by neighboring or even surrounded by competing firms, largest of which was the Northwest Company. Northwest Company was a Montreal-based fur trading company composed of Highland Scots, English and American traders who moved into Montreal and the Great Lakes fur trade after the French departure following the Seven Years' War. Some French traders, like Charles-Jean-Baptiste Chevalier, who ran the Northwest Company post at Pamina in 1799, stayed behind and joined these new traders. But most of the French-speaking side of the company was their labor force of voyageurs. By 1775, the Northwest Company had taken shape as shaky agreements between traders and the Saskatchewan River. The Northwest Company faced considerable challenges 
challenges in their competition with the HPC with its extensive history. The largest obstacle was access to the Canadian interior. The HPC charter from King James in 1670 gave it exclusive access to Hudson's Bay, which meant it had a considerable geographical advantage in reaching prime fur country. However, the technological edge that led the Northwest Company to outcompete the HPC in terms of furs exported from Canada was adapting to local foods, pemmican, and technology, birch bark canoes. Using local food meant they did not waste cargo space in their canoes carrying provisions, and the canoes were far faster to paddle and portage than the spruce wood bateau the HBC used. The bateau and boats were made of ash, and spruce, in other words, were too heavy to carry on the rapids and waterfalls, instead creating the need to drag and roll them over portage trails. Especially once they left Albany River to get further to the inland post, the HBC laborers regularly bemoaned the weight of their boats and the time it took to portage them. The Northwest Company, in contrast, almost exclusively using native-made birch bark canoes to move around the continent. HPC journals commented that the apparent ease with which N Northwest Company portaged uh, when they crossed paths, a regular occurrence giving, given how long it took the HPC to move their bateau. In 1795, John Sutherland complained about the number of Northwest Company traders he was forced to contend with. Quote, there are 20 canoes pass belonging to the Northwest Company, 10 of which is going to the Red River. How can we oppose the Grand Company with six bateaux and two of that loaded with provisions? Two years later, Thomas Miller of Evie Parish in Orkney wrote, quote, It is impossible that I can get anything with eight men in opposition to 25 well-supplied with canoes and every other article of trading goods, which makes the little I do get very expensive. The HBC would have liked to use canoes as well, but... Most of their supply hubs, like Albany Factory, were beyond the growing range of birch trees, uh, especially large enough ones to make canoes from easily. Attempts to buy canoes from Ojibwe builders for their inland were often thwarted by the Northwest Company. For trading posts on the Red River, access to Hudson's Bay was not a clear advantage. The HPC was accessing the Red River via Albany River and James Bay. The Northwest Company had its supply hub and headquarters well-established at Thunder Bay on Lake Superior. Often, the Northwest Company reached their fur post before the HPC by having a supply hub reliably outfitted by Montreal. Eventually, the rivalry between the two companies would become to a deadly, violent eruption on the Red River in 1814, and the eventual merger of the two companies in 1821. Fubister did not have to deal with the Northwest Company much directly their first few months working for the HBC, but the more experienced men at Albany certainly would have told stories about their rivals. In fact, complaints about the Northwest Company even made it into the statistical accounts for the Orkney Islands. Fubister had been at Albany for just under two weeks when they were, quote, dispatched for Henley House with trading goods and provisions on September 9th, 1806. Henley House was one of the first inland posts the HBC built in 1743. It was about 160 miles up the Albany River. Uh, the brigade returned 19 days later with, quote, some ash for boat building, end quote. There are no records from Henley House for 1806 to 1807, but Frobister's account might fill in some of the void. On the Henley House trip, four of the men making up the brigade, John Scarth, Robert Work, Hugh Petrie, Thomas Mainland, and John Frobister, had all arrived together on board the Prince of Wales. James Brown was a stranger to Fubster, but was part of the Henley expedition. James Brown often worked as a boat builder and was already established at Albany when Fubster arrived. At some point in 1806, Fubster gave one pound four shillings to Brown, which equates one-eighth of Fubster's annual pay. But the details of this payment are not recorded in the ledger. This is the one time we know from the records that they interacted with one another in 1806. Fubister spent the remainder of the winter as part of an unnamed labor force serving various scenes around the post. Sometimes, sometime around March, Fubister became pregnant. 
The Post Journal does not name Fubister as doing anything specifically around the Post. In fact, in the 1806-1807 journal, Fubister's name only appears three times, always when being sent upriver with supplies. John Scarth, as a high-ranking laborer, did appear. John Hodson, the factor in charge of Albany Factory, wrote that he, quote, dispatched Mr. Robbins and the Moose Men on their return to Moose. Mr. John Mackay, also went with him to see Mr. Thomas, sent John Scarth with him to assist them there on February 2nd. Scarth, Mackay, and Robbins arrived at Moose Factory on February 9th. But there, Scarth, despite being a senior laborer, did not warrant a mention by name. Hodgson also did not name Scarth when he wrote that Mr. Mackay returned from Moose Factory on March 26th. Nine months and three days later, John Fubister delivered a baby boy on the Red River named James Scarth. Likely, Fubister may have thought themselves secure in the men's quarters to adjust to chest binding or undress and clean themselves, only to be surprised by John Scarth, who had been gone for nearly two months. Once Scarth learned his shipmate was not a cis man, Fubister's status and safety was at risk. If Scarth did not happen upon Fubister in a vulnerable position in the quarters on his return from his factory, Hodgson regularly sent workers in groups of two to do various tasks. For example, on March 14th, Hodgson wrote, quote, One of the shipwrights and 12 men went up the Red River went up the river on Monday to look for crooked timber for the shallop. They returned on Wednesday with a sled load, and the men hauled home the remainder during the two-week week, week uh, sorry, two with the cattle hauling firewood, two cutting for fires, two cooks. Scarth and Fubister had already been assigned together for inland cargo trips and arrived as shipmates, and one experienced, but with no apparent specialty, another brand new laborer may have been an obvious team to put together. At some point, Scarth found Fubister was not a cis man and impregnated them. Romantics and some scholars have portrayed Scarth and Fubister as carrying lovers on an adventure together. It is true that they both signed on with Geddes and Stromness and sailed across the North Atlantic and the Prince of Wales, but Scarth signed a returning contract. He had worked for the HBC since John Fubister was eight years old, starting as a laborer in 1789. Scarth had returned to Orkney after 16 years of work for the HBC in September of 1805, only to be back at the Albany River District with a brand new contract by August of the next year. Scarth was regularly in a position of authority over the 20-year younger John Fubister. It takes less imagination to think Scarth was able to take advantage of Fubister than thinking they were devoted lovers bound for an adventure together in the Northwest. It is impossible that Scarth had been a long-missed romantic partner of Fubister's. Scarth was on a different continent from the time Fubister was eight until less than a year before they both left on the Prince of Wales of Stromness. It's not impossible that they met in the few months they were both on Orkney prior to their transatlantic voyage, but it seems unlikely. If Scarth had returned home for the first time in 15 years, it was likely to visit his home parish and not just hang around Stromness. After perhaps one or many encounters between Scarth and Fubister, they were once again both assigned to resupply the inland posts, this time heading further inland to Martins Falls on 21st of May, 1807. Fubister left with, quote, three large boats and three bateaux for Martins Fall, loaded with inland cargo. Once again, James Brown and John Scarth, as well as John Corrigal, and several other men were part of the trip to Martins Fall. Also accompanying them were, quote, 20 Indians besides their families, who all assist them according to their abilities. The brigade returned on June 19th, and after only three days... Fubister was once again sent out, but this time Fubister would not stop for the winter at Martins Falls, but proceeded all the way to the Red River. Whatever happened between them, John Fubister, now pregnant with John Scarth's child, traveled to the Red River as part of a wintering crew for the Pemina River Post, which was a window called home. 
From the post-journal at Martin's Falls, we know that the brigade arrived there early in July and proceeded on to Osnaburg House with a very full load of cargo. The clerk at Martin Falls, Joseph Jacob Corgill, wrote to John Sutherland, master at Osnaburg House, apologizing July 15th that it is not possible for me to send any of your wants by the eight boats who are overloaded. Mr. Mackay proceeds with the first four boats. Mr. Henney and Mr. Miller will proceed with the other four a few hours hence and all of them are in the deepest loaded boats I have ever saw go inland. Mr. Henney and Mr. Miller could be in charge of the HVC post. Mr. Henney and Mr. Miller would be in charge of the HVC post at Pemina and John Mackay at Brandon House. While the HVC kept meticulous records, the year Fubister was on the Red River, the journals were not saved, nor were those of the 1807-1808 season in Osnberg House, where they likely passed through in late July or early August. While the records of the HBC do not survive for the 1807 or 8 winter, the records from the, both Northwest Company and HBC several years earlier did survive. Thomas Miller ran the post for the HBC from 1799 to 1801, and John Charles Chabouillet operated a post for the Northwest Company at the same time. It is clear that while the posts were only separated by a small frozen over Pemina River, which flows into the west side of the Red River, the HBC and Northwest Company men did not interact much. It was normal for pillagers and other Anishinaabeg to visit both posts on the same day, but surprisingly little visiting happened between Miller and Chabouillet. On November 23rd, Miller was assaulted and robbed when off visiting a hunting camp to trade for furs. He recounted the event, quote, traded 24 made beaver from them during the night and the morning when I was about to leave them. They robbed me of two gallons of English brandy and a new gun. There was about 30 Indians. I kept the liquor as long as I was able to, but they overpowered me. I set off and arrived at the hunter's tent late at night. By the 25th, Miller had returned to his post, but Chabayer, who ran the Northwest Company post that year, did not record the incident until some of his laborers who witnessed the event returned to this post on December 1st. Chabayer wrote, Mr. Miller, who was with three men, was pillaged of 12 spirits and 12 quart spirits, one new gun, and a couple blankets, and very near being killed. Given the close proximity of the post, it is surprising that gossip of the theft of a gun and a near murder of Miller did not make its way to the Northwest Company. By the time Fubister arrived on the Red River in 1807, Alexander Henry the Younger had taken over the Pemina Post of the Northwest Company, and Mr. Henley was in charge of the HBC Post. Similarly, similarly to the tour and Sutherland years prior at Portage Dail, Henry was set up smaller trading had set up smaller trading posts further upriver once the summer had ended, as the pillagers were too weary of being ambushed by the Dakota to visit a trading post established at Grand Forks another 80 miles further upriver. Based on what Fubuster told Henry, it seems likely that Henley had ordered John Scarth and some of the other men to set up small posts to oppose Henry's establishment at Grand Forks. While the Northwest Company and HBC posts were a stone's throw from one another, this intense competition suggests Fubuster may have chosen to go to Henry's Northwest Company post when in labor to keep it a secret from their HBC colleagues. It is possible Fubuster did not know they were pregnant when they left Albany Factory on June 22nd. The restricted diet and heavy labor involved working for the HBC may have already led to an unpredictable menstrual cycle. Fubuster had never had ever-narrowing options as the summer gave way to fall when they were now in pillager country. Rather than amongst the northern Ojibwe and Cree they had traveled with on previous expeditions where they may have known who to ask for help in terminating the pregnancy if they wanted to do that without announcing themselves as a woman to the HBC. Once Fubister realized they were pregnant, they may also have counted on a miscarriage, as even amongst the gentry of Scotland at this time, there was nearly a 50% child mortality rate, many of which were stillbirths. One scholar has also suggested Fubister may have planned to commit infanticide after giving birth alone amongst the snowbanks. Ultimately, Fubister chose a stranger to assist them when towards the end of labor. 
Alexander Henry may not have been the worst to seek help from. Henry was wintering with the mother of his children at his post. Perhaps Webster hoped an experienced mother who spoke English would be able to assist in the birth. Fabister may also have thought they still had time to decide how they would proceed after the birth, if it if at a Northwest company rather than HPC post. Henry does not offer much detail of the birth, as he left Fabister at his hearth and went back to his personal quarters, but since he did not know Fabister was in labor, he likely did not send for his wife. The birth was fast once Fabister was positioned in the Northwest Company trading post. According to John Mackay, who is now the HBC trader at nearby Brandon House, the child was born before they could get her breeches off. Henry's full account suggests that Fabister did not know exactly what they were going to do yet. On December 29th, Henry writes, An extraordinary affair occurred this morning. One of Mr. Henny's Orkney lads, apparently indisposed, requested me to allow him to remain in my house for a short time. I was surprised at the fellow's demand. However, I told him to sit down and warm himself. I returned to my own room, where I had not been long before he sent one of my people requesting in favor of speaking with me. Accordingly, I stepped down to him and was much surprised to find him extended on the hearth, uttering dreadful lamentations. He stretched out his hands toward me and in piteous tones begged me to be kind to a poor, helpless, abandoned wretch who was not of the sex I had supposed, but an unfortunate Orkney girl, pregnant and actually in childbirth. In saying this, she opened her jacket and displayed a pair of beautiful round white breasts. She further informed me of the circumstances that had brought her into the state. The man who had debauched her in the Orkneys two years ago was wintering at Grand Forks. In about an hour, she was safely delivered of a fine boy, and that same day she was conveyed home in my carriole, where she soon recovered. End quote. It is not easy to know exactly what to make of Henry's account or Fubister's explanation. It suggests a longer relationship with John Scarf than seems likely if he debauched Fubister two years ago in the Orkneys. Henry did not write a name in his journal, neither Fubister nor Isabel Gunn. This may be an example of Henry's regular omission of women in his journals, or it might be that Fubister refused to give her their name. Rather than to Isabel Gunn, the first references to Fubister as a woman are to a Mary Fubister. With the local post journal missing... The first written account after Henry's comes from other HBC journals and travelers later in 1807. John Mackay's mention above came by way of John Kipling, who had just come from Pamina in March, and Mackay's account also has no name for Fubister. Jonathan Kipling set off for Summerbury, or Pamina River. He informed us that one of Henry's men has turned out to be a woman and was delivered of a fine boy in Mr. Henry's house. The child was born after they could, before they could get her breeches off. Unquote. Peter Fiddler was told about Fubister by the local Anishinaabeg, likely Wagatot Nozawindip's band, the day after he passed Pamina. Quote, the Ottawa Indians, about four or five miles, four or five families, has wooden houses here. Passed two Indians at noon. They say Mr. Hugh Henney of the HBC passed three days ago. The woman, Mary Fabister, who was delivered of a boy, 5th January last, has gone out. She hired with Mr. Geddes and Stromness as a man in men's clothing, 1806. Remained at Albany one, wither and her, one winter, and her sex was not known until the delivery, except to one John Scarth, her paramour, on whose account she came out. She worked at anything and well like the rest of the men. End quote. The story has changed from what Fubister told Henry of a man debauching her. Now Fubister was depicted as a woman who followed John Scarth, her paramour, all the way to Hudson's Bay. It is hard to know how many details are wrong here because of the Ottawa retelling of the incident or Fiddler's own misunderstanding. It is possible Fiddler's interpretation, and that of many later accounts which seem to echo the paramour explanation, was something Fubister said. Throughout the 18th century, several popular accounts depict women uh, dressing as men to follow husbands into battle or out to sea. 
famous accounts of female pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, featured romantic relationships which were allowed to blossom in unconventional places. A cross-dressing Anne Bonny found love aboard Jack Rackham's ship. So too did Mary Reed, but before Rackham. Reed found a spouse in the military. <clears throat> Once Mary Reed was discovered cross-dressing for military service, she revealed her sex and married an officer and was rewarded with money and a military discharge and ran a successful pub for a time. Mary Reed was not the only famous person in the 18th century to go from being a military man to a pub-owning woman. Hannah Snell followed a similar trajectory to Mary Reed, but did not go into piracy. Hannah dressed as a man to help in finding her husband who had run away and on learning that he had been executed, she joined the British army. When Hannah was discovered to not be a cis man, she petitioned for a pension, had several editions of her story published and attempted to open a pub. Fubister likely knew of at least one story like that of Reed, Bonnie and Snell. If the narrative of being debauched could turn into the popular one of a lover following her man, they might be rewarded rather than punished. That narrative would need the agreement of John Scarth to be most successful. Mary Reed and her officer husband ran their pub together. As the popular account of Reed says, quote, Thus being set up, they seem to have a desire of quitting the service and settling in the world. The adventure of their love and marriage had gained them so much favor that they easily obtained their discharge, and they immediately set up an eating house or ordinary, which was the sign of the three horseshoes near the castle of Breda, where they soon run into a good trade, and great many officers eating with them constantly, end quote. If this was Fabister's hope, Scarth did not help with it. We learn that the Brigade of the Red River Men and Fabister made it back to Martin's Falls on June 18th from Thomas Vincent, who wrote, quote, One of Mr. Henney's men, David Spence Jr., died last fall the journey, and another was found to be a woman debauched, so she says, by John Scarth, by whom she has a child. Unfortunately, Vincent did not explain uh, if the, quote, so she says, was a statement from Fubister or Scarth or from Henny and Miller. Whoever passed the information along, it seems as though Scarth had already denied the status, his status as the father of James Scarth. John Scarth never acknowledged James as his son. One of Fubister and Scarth's shipmates back aboard Prince of Wales in 1806, John Corrigal, had stood before the Kirk or Scottish church authorities in the 1780s and denied being the father of a woman's child. And after swearing his innocence in front of the congregation, enough times was accepted as innocent and not required to provide any care for the child. This was obviously not a way to avoid caring for unwanted children for the mother, so this was not a scheme Fubister was allowed. Mr. Henney and the other HBC men in charge of Fubister's employment did not want to allow Fubister to live and work as John Fubister, but instead used Mary Fubister. Mary was one of the favorite names fur traders gave to indigenous wives, especially, essentially a fur trader Jane Doe. This also suggests that Fubister had created a whole new true identity for themselves and was not really cross-dressing Isabel Gunn. When they reached Albany in short order, Mary Fubister became known as Isabel Gunn. While the company would not allow Gunn to do the same work they had the year previously as Fubister, they assigned Gunn work they felt appropriate for a woman, as a schoolteacher's assistant and as a washerwoman. Gunn did not excel at either of these tasks, and when Jonathan Fubister's contract was up, the HBC paid Gunn and sent them back to Stromness. While gender and sexuality may not have been the most important part of Oza Wyndham's life, for Fubister it was made so by the men who discovered them to be what they considered a woman. Ojibwe society was not perfectly egalitarian, but the balance between people carrying out male and female roles was such that it was not inconceivable that someone born with a penis might live as a woman. 
they were many possible motivations for Fabister Gunn to live as a man, so it is difficult to prove that they were a trans man and not just a cis woman in men's clothes. The men of the HPC had no problem understanding why a person born with a vagina would want to live as a man. In their perception, they only saw women as subservient to men or as being oppressed by men as drudges. Fubister was now forced into a life not as Jonathan Fubister, labor for the HPC, but Isabel Gunn, washerwoman and teacher and mother to James Scarth. Gunn was apparently terrible at the various tasks the company gave them to finish out the three-year contract Jonathan Fubister had signed. The HBC was in the process of changing the way they operated in terms of their attention to children. They'd opened a school and hoped Gunn would be helpful to William Harper, who served as a teacher. Gunn was not helpful in that role, nor as a washerwoman. The servant reports report of Gunn, quote, We cannot think of keeping this woman any longer, as she is of bad character, and was not answered the intentions for which she was detained. Fubister's contract was not up until 1809, though, so they kept Fubister, now Gunn, working until that year. While at Albany, James Scarth was baptized, despite not being claimed by his father. In October of 1808, the school teacher William Harper performed a divine service and, quote, baptized the son of Isabel Gunn, which performances was after by duly registered. The Pemina crew had arrived in Albany months prior to this, and the gap may indicate that there was hesitancy to baptize James as he was a bastard, and there might have been the hope that John Scarth would acknowledge his offspring. Possibly Gunn may have guessed that it would be harder to have their son baptized as an unwanted mother, as an unwed mother, rather, back in Orkney, rather than by a school teacher working for the HPC. Ultimately, the same ship which carried John Fubister away from Stromness carried Isabel Gunn and James Scarth back. They boarded the Prince of Wales on the 20th of September, 1809, and landed back in Stromness on 29th of October. With a child in tow, and having been the gossip for all of the Northwest, Isabel Gunn held that name as a permanent identity. Gunn did not return to her home community in Tankerness, but instead stayed in Stromness. The economic conditions and wage disparity for women in the Orkneys remained the same, if not worse, than when Fubister had left, but Stromness could provide very meager income by selling knit goods or other services to sailors and soldiers who visited the port. In 1813, Gunn was brought before the Kirk to be thoroughly shamed for having another child out of wedlock. One visitor to the Scottish Highlands described this practice 50 years prior. Marianne Hannaway traveled to Scotland and the Highlands in the 1770s. Hannaway's comments, which described Scottish ladies, are no kinder than those of Thomas Pennant, who had described Scottish women as beasts of burden. Hannaway wrote to Scottish women, quote, I've never... I have seldom seen a pretty girl among the lower class, which is so frequent in England. The only reason, in my opinion, to be given for it is the female beauty depends much on delicacy, and the hard and laborious part which the women take in this country when young accounts for their being coarse and disagreeable, so that there is but little temptation for youth in this country to form amours, or more indulge his inclination to gallantry. But there is still a stronger thing than their plainness to deter him the law in this case, for if the girl prove with child, both of them are obliged to do public penance, and the clergyman reads them a lecture reproof before the whole congregation. This mode of chastisement appears to me very well calculated to keep them honest, as a shame attending the punishment will hinder the committing the crime by which it was occurred, incurred. This time in the Black Stool, or the Stool of Repentance, was only one of the church's arsenal. The punishment was not the only thing the church would do. If the mother named a father, both would face the Black Stool, but the father could continue to deny the claim, much like John Scarth did. In the ecclesiastical records for Orkney in 1780s, a man, John Corgill, possibly the same man that traveled with Scarth and Fubister in 1806, faced the Black Stool 
and the lectures and condemnations of the church, but he continually denied the accusation of the mother. Marion Hurston, the reports read, in Evie and Randall Parish, had brought forth a child some time ago and given John Corwell as the father thereof. And they, having been seriously and repeatedly dealt with, said John Corgill, continued obstinately to deny all manner of guilt uh, with the said Marion Horston, whereupon they were cited to compere before this meeting of the presbytery. And they being called upon, compared, when confronted and examined, and they still adhering to their former declarations in the presbytery, considering the said John Corwell's obstinacy, seeing strong presumptions lying against him, appoint Mr. Anderson, minister of E.V. and Randall, to give the said Corwell a copy of the oath of purgation to consider of and take his oath before the congregation, as he shall see the most expedient for edification. And March the Presbytery reported delivering the oath of purgation, and at the end of April, Corgill had his oath of purgation, uh, which found him innocent in the eyes of Kirk and before the congregation. While men like Corgill and Scarth could deny the claims levied against them, it was more challenging for women to deny. In 1813, Isabel Gunn was one of many unwed mothers brought before the Kirk session at Stromness. Any goodwill or fame she had on returning from Hudson's Bay was gone. The presbytery had Charles Craig before them, and unlike Corgill, Craig, quote, acknowledged himself to be the father of a child born in Orkney last by Isabel Gunn, an unmarried woman, and being his first offense of the kind, and her second offense. Further punishment was levied against Gunn and Craig's daughter, Nellie. Gunn was one of many women discussed at the same Kirk session. The Presbytery suggested that many of these women lived in the same house, and as many of the named fathers were soldiers and sailors, it might be some sort of a brothel. The Presbytery condemned the house, but lacked authority to do much more, especially as the military is involved. They passed the decision up to the next level of authority in the Kirk, but did what they could to punish the women and their children. William Clouston, the same man who had confirmed James Scarth's baptism upon Gunn's return to Orkney, wrote, quote, The Kirk session, not acquainted with the practice and the other places where the military are stationed, it was his opinion that they should be cautious as to their procedure, and he doubted whether they could do anything further than deny them baptism for their children and all other churches' privileges. If Gunn hoped to replicate the success, stories of cis women who had cross-dressed to follow lovers and husbands to war did not work. Rather than opening a successful pub, she appears in census records going forward in Stromness listed as a knitter or spinner, and ultimately is discovered having died of natural decay in a pauper's house in 1861. Her obituary read, quote, Isabel, in her youthful days, dressed herself in male attire and went out to Hudson's Bay in search of her lover and lived there for some time ere her sex was discovered, end quote. British popular culture provided many narratives of devoted wives living as men to be closer to their husbands, or dedicated patriots whose love for country is too great not to enlist for the front lines. Ojibwe culture, on the other hand, was filled with people changing their image and representation either as mythological animals or even Wainabuju turning himself into a woman. The Orkney Islands had stories of shapeshifters as well, of course, but the most famous example, Selkie stories, generally feature a woman held captive against her will by a man who traps her by locking her transforming sealskin in a box where she cannot find it to return to the sea. If a person who was born with a penis lived as a woman, it undermined the drudgery narrative many colonizers saw Ojibwe women living in. 
This is why it's important to center Two-Spirit people in understanding not just of queer indigenous history, but of Ojibwe men and women's roles in Ojibwe society at the time of colonization. The state and religious institutions which governed Furbister's life did not have clear analogs for Rosalinda. There was no court system, Kirk or otherwise, which governed the birth of children. Unwanted children or orphans may have been cared for by Two-Spirit people like Rosalinda or incorporated into extended families. No Ojibwe institution existed to judge and punish people based on their individual choices about romantic partnerships, reproduced, reproduction or marriage, and divorce. The one forbidden sexual relationship in Noza Wyndham's lifetime was between clan relatives, and even then the punishments for it were likely carried out by one's own family rather than an institution like the Kirk. Fubister's experiences offers a preview as to what the sorts of limits and worldviews would be forced on Ojibwe and the continuation with the continuation of colonization. Ozwindam's life was governed by a rich cultural tradition, but also by individual experiences and interpretations of signs from spiritual entities. Ojibwe most often supported these choices, whereas Fubister had levels of legal and religious institutions to evaluate, reward, and punish them for their life. If Fubister had heard of two-spirit people before signing up to work for the HPC, it is hard to imagine their world would not have seemed like a more welcoming place to live.